You're not good enough. You're out. You don't belong here. You'll never be one of us. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard those words or been treated that way, but I don't think there's anyone who wants to hear or be treated like that. And something you need to know about God's people, especially in the day when Jesus was walking the earth, for a long time the Israelites were the only ones who were able to worship and, uh, able to worship and approach God in any way. And these Israelites had been enslaved, they'd been at war, they'd failed God, and they'd been reconciled, all this stuff in their story, but for better or worse, they were God's people. And they took a lot of pride in that. They took a lot of pride in being Jewish. It defined them, it's what made them special, it's what they felt elevated them above everyone else, and it was like, you know, we don't mean to be better than you, we just, you know, we are. We're chosen. We're right. Everyone else is wrong. You know, one of the things Jesus really bristled against when he walked the earth, especially when it came to how the church was functioning, was that there was a real, some people are in and some people are out mentality when it came to how people were treated. But you see, when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two and, the, and community and relationship with God was no longer something that was just reserved for the people of Israel, but was for now available to everyone, for all people. And the truth is, the Jewish people really struggled to accept this truth. And so, when the early church was forming in Jerusalem, these Israelites had to come, come to terms with the fact that this God, who had been exclusively theirs, had now made himself available to people from all nations. And there were growing pains with that, to say the least. There were arguments about who was really in and who was really out. And there was a lot of mistreatment and judgment and condemnation towards non-Jewish people who are referred to as Gentiles. A lot of mistreatment and judgment towards Gentiles coming from those Israelites. And Paul, as we read, read through this letter in Ephesians that we've been in this Therefore series, Paul writes this letter to a mostly Gentile church in the city of Ephesus, and he re-emphasizes how Jesus' death and burial and resurrection impacted this conversation of who's in and who's out. And so that's where we're going to be starting, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, and this is what the text says says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. We'll get back to that. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What a line. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. It's difficult to put into words just how significant and essential this passage is. And just for clarity, because the circumcision passages always seem to fall to me, I don't know how (laughs) that happens. But with that, we just need to understand what's actually being said here, and from a contextual standpoint. You see these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, they didn't adhere to all of these ceremonial laws that Jewish people had been observing their entire life. You can read and the books, biblical books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that Jewish people would get circumcised and they'd eat specific foods and they'd wear specific things and they'd wear their hair specific ways and there were all these things that they would do to try to stay clean in the eyes of God. It was the system of trying to make yourself holy. It was the system of trying to earn your salvation by adhering to all of these ceremonial laws. Well, that system was completely wrecked by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Because not only did Jesus fulfill all of the laws on our behalf, but then he also took all of our failures and paid for them when he died on our behalf. That's what the verse means when it says, Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I know it's a confusing way to word it, but it means you don't earn your salvation anymore by following rules. Now you accept your salvation by following Jesus. Salvation is attained by putting your faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. And Paul writes to these Gentiles in Ephesus, reemphasizing all these things. And, and basically, he, he's sending them one big instruction at the beginning of this passage. And the big instruction at the beginning is, remember that before Jesus, you had no chance. You had no chance. Like, not only were you not allowed in the temple to worship in the first place, but even if they would have let you in, you would have never been able to keep all those laws. Like, there are three books of them, for crying out loud. Before Jesus, you had no chance. So the first point of this passage for us is we have to remember who you were before Jesus. Remember who you were before Jesus. Verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who every single believer, pastor, disciple, Bible hero, worship leader, evangelist, doesn't matter who you are, if you follow Jesus now, this is who we used to be. This is all of our story. This is where all of us came from. I want you to notice the key words that describe what life looked like before Jesus. Separated alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. Remember who you were before Jesus. Who were you? I know who I was. I know where I was. Do you remember? And not everyone has this like colorful, exciting testimony with all kinds of crazy sins and escapades and run-ins with different people and all these evil things in the world. I know that's not everyone's story, but separated alienated, strangers, no hope, and without God. That is everyone's story as they come into the world. We were all delivered from something. Don't forget that. Remember where you came from. I know a lot of parents say that to their children. You're going to go a lot of places, and you're going to do a lot of things. Just remember where you came from. Don't forget. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus heals a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. 
38 years stuck on this small, dirty mat, waiting for a handout, hoping for a miracle. He was separated, alienated, a stranger, no hope without God. And then Jesus steps into his story and changes his life forever. Jesus heals him, tells him to stand up and walk, and it happens because it's Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just tell him to get up and walk. He tells him to stand up, pick up his mat, and then go. Jesus tells him to pick up this dirty old mat that he'd been sitting on for all these years and take it with him. And I always wondered why, but now I tend to believe it's Jesus' way of telling him, hey, you're going to go a lot of places and you're going to do a lot of things, but don't forget who you were when I found you. Don't forget where you came from. Carry that mat with you. Remember who you used to be. You know, I wonder how that guy's life played out. We never hear his full story. And sometimes I wish we'd get those little montages that they would do at the end of 80s movies that told you where everyone ended up. Uh, Billy went on to be a veterinarian. Liz went on to be president of her sorority. The man who couldn't walk for 38 years, he picked up his mat and he went on to do what? I like to imagine him later in his life, and this is all speculation, but just later in his life, maybe he has a family now. Maybe has a job, but maybe things are hard. Maybe money's tight and life is hard and it's, it's overwhelming. And I like to imagine him like lying to his wife and kids that he has to clean the attic just like so he can get a few minutes of peace. I'm going to go clean the attic. So he's up there pretending and digging through these old boxes and maybe he's talking to God like, God, where are you even at? Do you even care about me at all? Do you see how overwhelmed and stressed? Do you see the situation that I'm in? And then opening up a box and finding that old dirty mat inside of it. And feeling God say, man, whenever you start to wonder whether or not I love or care about you, remember where you were when I found you. Remember where you came from. And you might be thinking, man, there's no way this guy would ever forget where he came from. The dude couldn't walk for 38 years. He wouldn't forget the significance of something like that. But I'd say to you, how many years were you dead before Jesus brought you to life? You remember that passage Jamie preached on last week if you were here? Not only were you able to not walk, you used to be dead. And how easily do we forget the significance of that? You know what will happen to a person who forgets who they used to be before Jesus? They'll start to feel entitled. Start to feel as though they can demand things from God. They'll start to feel as though they should be spared from the hardships of this life because they put their faith and Jesus, I've seen it time and time again, and I've experienced it myself. God, how could you let this happen to me? How could you take them away from me? God, why didn't you intervene? God, why didn't you? And you can fill in the blanks. I, I've had a lot of those blanks. And those moments become more frequent as you forget who you used to be before Jesus. But you see, when you're carrying your mat around with you, when you constantly remember who you used to be, Man, the gratitude will overwhelm you every day of your life. Who were you before Jesus? I heard somewhere, and I know Jamie has quoted it, but I don't know who originally said it, but there's this quote that says something to the effect of, if Jesus never did another thing for me beyond going to the cross, it'd still be more than enough. See, if you remember who you used to be before Jesus, you will live your life with gratitude. If you remember who you used to be before Jesus, you'll live your life with gratitude. That brings us to the next thing Paul lays before these Ephesians. Don't just 
Remember who you were before Jesus. Embrace who you are after Jesus. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Bible expresses the consequences of the cross in a lot of different ways. If you're a money person, Jesus paid your debt. If you're a law person, Jesus served your sentence. If you're a military person, Jesus fought your battle. If you're a kingdom person, Jesus welcomed you into his kingdom. If you're a family person, Jesus adopted you into his family. There's a lot of different illustrations and metaphors for it, but the core of any and every iteration of the gospel is that there was something standing between you and God, and Jesus removed whatever that was and invited you to come in. You who were once far off have now been brought near. Now remembering who you used to be before Jesus, that always has to be in direct conjunction to embracing who you are after Jesus. You have to do these things together. You can't just simply dwell on who you used to be. It's valuable to remember it, but you can't just dwell on it. Why? Well, because who you used to be is still constantly fighting to try to make you that person again. There's a war going on inside of you. Your flesh, the human side of you, is at war with the Spirit of God inside of you, and they're always butting heads, always fighting for your attention and your devotion, and your flesh fights to turn all your attention towards yourself while the Spirit of God is trying to turn your attention towards Jesus, and they're always battling, and neither one of them ever take a day off. It's hard. Don't let anyone ever tell you that being a Christian is easy. It's not. It's, it's worth it, but it's not for the faint of heart. You must remember who you used to be, but only so far as it allows you to embrace who you are now. Because here's the truth. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not the same. You're not the same. I know the world will tell you that you're not really different. I know the people in the circles you used to run with will tell you that this Jesus thing is all a phase and you'll just be back to your old ways before long, and I know that your flesh and the enemy is constantly badgering you and telling you that you don't really have faith and you're not really saved because if you were, you wouldn't still struggle with X, Y, and Z. I know that you have all these things going on because I do too. But I need you to hear me right now. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not the same. And you need to embrace that. You see, the second you put your faith in Jesus... God sealed the promise of your salvation by planting his Holy Spirit deep inside of you. And so now when you sin, God no longer sees your brokenness and your failures and temptations. Now when you sin, when God looks at you, he only sees the righteousness of his son. And I think if we just embraced that and remembered that, we wouldn't cast ourselves over the coals every time we stumble and fall. I think instead we would jump and shout and sing with immeasurable joy because even in our brokenness and hurt, God looks down upon us with the same love that he looks at Jesus with. When God looks at me, even on my worst days, even when I'm a complete mess, he doesn't see all that. He just sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's amazing. But I think we rarely live that way. You know, we, we have this way of counting days when we're perfect, trying to line them up back to back and measuring our success by that. If you're an addict, if that's a part of your story, you have this success counter, right? I'm 13 days sober, I'm two years sober, I'm two days sober, whatever it is. 
And when we make a mistake, what do we do? We send ourselves all the way back to day one. But what if we didn't? Because guess what? You're not one day sober. You're still 13 days sober. You're still two years sober. You are however many days sober since you decided that isn't your life anymore. And if you still stand by that decision and you're working towards it, you are still sober. So give yourself some grace and keep walking in it, man. You know, we hold this insane standard and we show no grace to ourselves and I am telling you this, oh my gosh, I failed and now I'm back to day one. Like that approach to life, that has crushed the confidence and joy and sobriety and health of so many people and we do the same thing with our sin. Man, I hadn't done this thing in so long. I was doing so good, but like I just messed up and so now I'm back to day one trying to be perfect for Jesus. Didn't you know that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that God is no longer keeping a record of your wrong. Did you know that? Now, am I saying that to tell you that there's no purpose in obedience? No, I'm not saying that. There is purpose in obedience. Obedience has a place, and it's a big place. Obedience place is for you to experience the fullness of the life that God has designed for you. Obedience is place is to make you the best version of yourself, a better spouse, better parent, better friend, better neighbor, better co-worker. Obedience's place is for you now to experience life the way that God has designed and intended for you to experience. See, the thing is, obedience isn't chains. Obedience is freedom. God's way is better. It always has been. It always will be. Obedience has a lot of purposes, but hear me, none of them are to save you. Only faith in Jesus can do that. And the same goes with the illustration of sobriety. No matter how much you fail, no matter how much you experience brokenness in your life, if you still stand by your decision to follow Jesus, you don't have to send yourself back to day one every time you mess up. What if instead we said, nope, that's not who I am anymore, that's just my old self trying to make its way back, but that's not me, I'm not that person anymore, I'm not the same, and so I'm picking my cross back up and I'm just moving forward with Jesus. What if you remembered and embraced who you are after encountering Jesus? You see, if you remember who you used to be before Jesus, you'll live your life with gratitude. But if you embrace who you are after Jesus, you'll live your life with confidence. Gratitude, confidence. And then Paul gets to the meat of this section. Understand the purpose Jesus gave you. You see, Paul really like peels back the curtain and paints this vivid picture of what the gospel can do, not only in the life of like an individual person, but in a community. And I think it was relevant back when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, but I think this is just as prevalent in 2023, especially as we're headed into 2024 in America. This is what it says. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice all of this bringing together language. And he came and preached to you who were far off, Gentiles, and to you who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household 
of God. That's why it's written elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Galatians. It said there's, not, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile anymore. There's just one body now. It says built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And really those last two verses are the ticket here. They point to our purpose. Yes, as individuals, but more so as a community. Like this community of believers, like all of us, not just South Point Church, but like the capital C Worldwide Church, we are being used as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God on this planet. A dwelling place. This collection of broken, fragile vessels collectively carrying within us the greatest gift God has ever given to mankind. You see, really, there aren't different denominations with different goals and missions and different emphases. Like, uh, we play that game, but biblically, like, there isn't any of that. Actually, according to this verse we just read, Jesus broke down every division and barrier. He prayed for the unity of his church. And so, like, for me, the question is, why are things still so divided? Why is the church so divided? As Paul writes this letter, Jesus' followers in Ephesus and around the ancient world are still working through these conversations of who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong and who's saved and who isn't type of discussion. And it might not be the perfect parallel, but man, if I don't hear those same conversations in the American church like right now and experience the same division right now, if that's not division, I'm not sure what is. There are a ton of different issues dividing the church. I mean, you, you name it, social and political issues as far as the eye can see. And the thing is, for me, the big problem with there being division in the church is that the church is supposed to be the picture of the kingdom of God for the rest of the world. Like by design, like God has bestowed that privilege and responsibility to us. Like if people in the world are looking for a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like and how it functions, they're supposed to see that in us. Now, I'm just going to be real. This would not be my plan if I were God. Because you see, I, I look around I look around and, and I, I read what Jesus, how he describes his kingdom. And I read how Jesus describes his followers would be. And then I look at the American church and not only do I not see it, like there are most days I barely even see the correlation. And we might not still be arguing about circumcision in the American church, but we're still fighting. I mean, how many times have you heard Christians openly mock other churches or Christians that don't align with exactly how they worship? And the thing is, we'll pretend that we're doing it in Jesus' name, but it, it's really just pride. Really, it's just about being right. Don't pretend like it's anything else. It, we're not seeking unity. We're not seeking to guide because we don't even listen to one another. We'll just bury each other with memes or sound bites or quotes or articles. And listen, this is not me talking about how we relate to non-believers. That's not even on the table right now. I'm talking about how we relate to other Christians. It's like all we do is argue and cast judgment on one another. And do you know what Christians argue about most with other Christians? The biggest thing we argue about, it's a three-letter word, sin. We argue about sin. 
Is this really a sin? Why isn't your church openly condemning this sin? Why does your church allow people to serve who sin this way? Why does your worship team sing songs that were written by people who sin? Does your church actually believe that people who commit this sin are going to heaven? For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do, do you hear this? Paul saying this to the church in Ephesus, but I'm, this is written to us too. He's literally saying you're divided over the law. You're arguing about the law. You're drawing lines in the sand about who's in and who's out. And I'm telling you, you've completely missed the point. This passage states it so viscerally that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility in his own flesh. Like the the sins you're all busy fighting about, they're already paid for with Jesus' blood. It's like you're standing in front of a debt collector with another person and you're saying, no, no, like they owe more, like I already paid mine, but like their account's like, they, they have this outstanding balance. And the debt collector's looking right in your face and saying, the debt's paid. No, no, they still have this lingering sin, like this lingering bill in their account and like they need to serve, they need to be punished for this, they need to be in prison, they need to be killed for this. And the debt collector says, hold on, let me check your account. You, you said that you paid your debt. Let me see. Yeah, no, your account's paid, but you, you didn't make the payment. Like, your account was way overdrawn. Someone else paid that. They, they, they paid for both of you. And still we'll stand there and point fingers back and forth, arguing about balances, arguing about who still owes. And all the while, the whole world is watching, and we're supposed to be a picture of the kingdom of God. You want to know the real reason why Christians attack other Christians and point fingers and accuse and shame and judge? We do that because we're insecure in our own salvation. That's the truth. You're insecure. You're unsure if you're really saved because you still do bad things. But you see, if you can find someone else who you think is worse than you and you can divert all the attention onto them and away from you, maybe no one will notice, right? The Jews were doing the same thing. They'd had God on their side this entire time, and yet they continued to fail and betray him. And now all of a sudden, these other people are going to come in, and they're going to be all excited and talk about how they're saved, and they're not even abiding by the laws and keeping all the laws. Like, no, no, no. If I'm going to feel guilty about my sin, I'm definitely not going to let you be excited and experience freedom and peace while you still sin. That's the game we're playing, whether you realize it or not. And I am telling you, no one that remembers who they used to be before Jesus and embraces who they are after Jesus is sitting around trying to make other people less excited about the gospel because there's still sin in their life. Obsessing over sin has pushed us apart, but obsessing over Jesus will bring us together. Obsessing over sin has pushed us apart, but obsessing over Jesus will bring us together. Did you know that God didn't just save you for your sake? God didn't just save you just for you. He actually saved you to bring glory to himself. 
God is in the business of showing people how amazing he is. That's what he does. And the reason he saved you is, yes, because he loves you, but even more so, so that the people around you can look at who you were before Jesus and see who you are after Jesus and witness how amazing he is. So that they might also be saved and then show others how amazing he is. You see, if you weren't aware, this is how the entire universe currently operates. You can look up at the stars and the planets and the cosmos and like have this overwhelming experience of something deeper and more profound than yourself because the universe is testifying to how amazing he is. You could go to the beach at sundown and watch the waves crash against the sand with the cotton candy pink and orange sky and it like takes your breath away and gives you the sense of something deeper and more profound than yourself. And whether people fully grasp it or not, it's all testifying to how amazing he is. And God has invited you to be a part of this testimony which is being declared by everything else in creation. Humans are the only ones who have a choice. And it's when you are brought to life by the message of the gospel and you join in this process of bringing glory to him, like that's where life begins. That's what we're here for. Not when you get a better job, not when you get married, not when you have kids, not when you retire, but when your goal moves away from being right or satisfied or comfortable or being in when your goal shifts away from all those things and your goal becomes glorifying Him. That's where life begins. Man, He's worthy of it. You see, God didn't save me because I'm awesome. He saved me because He's awesome. I didn't invite God into my story. He invited me into His story. God isn't here to join me and fulfilling my desires. Are you serious? He's invited me to be a part of fulfilling his desires. You see, a perfect and holy God submitting to the plans of a broken and corrupt man, like that makes no sense, whatever. But a broken and corrupt man submitting to the plans of a perfect and holy God, that makes perfect sense. So if I read the Bible and I think it's about me, I'm wrong. If a pastor preaches and makes it all about me and my worldly success, they're wrong. If anything points my attention inwardly towards myself instead of upwardly towards Jesus, it does me no good in this life. It has to be all about Him. And when we make it all about Him, the walls of division and selfishness and judgment and condemnation, those walls will come down. Next year is going to be crazy in America, you guys. You know how they say it gets worse before it gets better? Well, in terms of American society, I think it's just going to get worse before it gets even more worse. And there are going to be a lot of things that you can focus on. Politics, sexuality, war, rights, race, gender, money, entertainment, news, social media. And I'm telling you right now, not all of these things and all these issues in and of themselves, they're not bad But when you take your eyes off of Jesus and focus too hard on any of them, you're going to get drugged through the mud with everyone else. These issues will divide us. They will wreck what God is trying to do through us. Or we could stay anchored to Jesus. Come hell or high water, we can obsess over him and make everything about him. And if we do that, if we make everything about him, Not only will we live with gratitude and confidence and purpose, which everyone wants, 
but maybe also the people around us, the people in your family, the people you love, maybe they'll catch a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is actually about. Let's pray. God, I, I confess my own participation in the division of your church. God, I confess my own judgment and condemnation and finger-pointing in the ways that I've participated in that, in the ways I've actively participated directly against what you've prayed for in your church and thinking that makes me right or a better person or any of those things. God, I, I just want to do what you want me to do. I just want this church to be a church that seeks to be obedient to you and lives our life according to what you desire. And I know that your desire is unity, not just for unity's sake, so that we can present this unified, beautiful picture of the kingdom of God to the rest of the world that so desperately needs to see that there is something so much better than all the mess that they are witnessing going on in the news and in the world around them. God, I pray that as a community and as individuals, you are helping us to constantly remember who we were before you so that we can live our lives in gratitude, so we can understand what we've been delivered from, but also allow us to embrace who we are now, God, that as we continue to stumble and make mistakes from time to time, that your view of us has not changed, that your love for us has not changed, that when you look at us, if we put our faith in your son, you still see his righteousness. God, I pray this message sticks to our hearts. I pray that we can't get Jesus out of this place. I pray that we can begin to con or continue to make things less about ourselves and more about you, Lord. That's when life really begins. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.